0: Hello, and welcome to I'm a fan of that, a podcast about all things fandom, told through objects, stories, and studies, with a bit of silliness thrown in along the way. Your hosts on this journey are Dr. Vivian Asimov, public anthropologist and pop culture academic, and me, pop culture writer and journalist, all round enthusiast, Holly Swinyard. Join us as we deep dive into the wonderful and wacky world of fan culture, its history, the people who make it up, and the way we look at this ever growing part of our society. Fair warning, we may well talk about some adult themes, use some adult language, and possibly get a bit nerdy about the whole thing. You have been warned. <laughs> Hi, my name is Holly Swinyard. And I'm Vivian Asimovs, <laughs> And welcome to I'm a Fan of That, where we talk about the wonderfully complicated worlds of fandom through the objects that we love. Vivian... I've brought something fun today. Can you hear it? <laughs> Vaguely, yes. Yeah. I have I have quite a loud patch yeah. that I won't subject yeah. people to. Because <laughs> um, I think today's object is uh, a d20, or my entire bag of D&D dice.
1: I was trying to balance mine on my nose before, but it it's hard. It, yeah. Uh,
0: I am that person who, during any game of D&D, will stack them all up into a little tower. Like, I will balance them <laughs> How many high can I get? Uh, considering I have more than one set, obviously. I'm assuming you've played D and D before. You must have done, or tabletop role playing games. Will
1: I? I have very briefly. Um, I don't have very many friends who play, although I do now that I've been hanging out with much, much more nerds. But um... you mean cool people. <laughs> But I had always really wanted to, and so during extreme lockdown, I convinced my partner to give it a try, and we did a two-person one that I DM'd, and it was a little sad, but I think it was fun still. It is fun. I I actually have a lot of friends who play as a couple where one or
0: other of them will DM and the other one will kind of play, and it's sort of like communal storytelling that you get to be in the story, which is great. I really like that. Um, Yeah, it was fun. I took way too long to plan it out for as simple (laughs) as it was. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, uh, anecdote time. My friend Andy is a musician and he wrote entire musical scores for the one he was playing with my friend, my other friend, his wife. Um, And they're amazing. And they're, they're just for him. He just got Ugh. bored and made them. And one of them happens to be because they're doing the Labyrinth tabletop RPG in the style of David Bowie doing the Dance Magic Dance. And it's, <laughs> with all the voices, it's genuinely an incredible thing. And I'm like, this is just for you to play in your house. And he was like, yeah. I'm like, why? Okay. Right. Fair enough the level to which people go to with this because they just want to have fun it's great yeah well uh, that's what we're talking about exactly that's the whole point uh, <laughs> it's like a a nice segue into what we're gonna do <laughs> um i think we'll use tabletop role-playing games if we can because we want to be generic about it and D is uh it's like hoover isn't it you know which one is, or I don't know ipod dnd's become yeah. the, the i've forgotten what the word is the, the the general term but it's it's not it's tabletop role-playing games um, yes,
1: because there there are a lot of different types. In fact, I think yeah. I I listened to an actual play podcast, which is a whole other thing that we could probably talk about. But uh, these are podcasts where you listen to people playing a tabletop role playing game. Yeah. Um, and the one that I listen to uses a completely different system. That's uh Galaxy, I think, which is oh, cool. Star Wars yeah. originally based. But they used the system and put it in a completely different world. And
0: because you can use GURPS. you can use um like the Call of Cthulhu one, which is the most unnecessarily complex one but makes sense if you're playing Call of Cthulhu but nothing else Um, because it makes sense if you're playing a game where you have to have a sanity meter but if you're not doing any other system why would you need it Um, and yeah there's so depending and like you can have ones that are literally like a page long rules where you just have a table and dice and all this sort of stuff so there's lots of different ones out there depending on your how involved you want to get with the rules and how much you want to just tell a story with your friends so but uh, yeah, D and D has become the one, I guess. Um, and at time of recording, they've just had a huge load of nonsense going on about that with the yes. yeah, original games license uh, or gaming license, I think it's called. Um, but we won't get into that yet. Well, let's yeah, let's talk about what makes like tabletop role playing games sort of fun and exciting.
1: Yes, I think that one of the most important things that you hear from most players would be that kind of need for escapism and need for playing when you're an adult um often we think of playing as something that kids do yeah. and that adults are very serious people who live <laughs> their Only? life yeah. very seriously um, but that's not true. I mean, people play in all sorts of different ways. Um, and this is one of the ways in which people play. And as an adult, um, in many ways, still quite similar to the way that children play, but also in, in its own its own way as well.
0: Yeah, um, I think tabletop role-playing games are quite interesting and are slightly, I don't know, they're kind of unique in it because they allow you this moment of working through emotions and stuff, which I think play is what it's meant to do, right? It's meant to help you, understand the world and as a child like learn things and all that kind of stuff and playing sports and stuff and things like that can help you like can physically help you do that but I think there's this weird emotional thing with D&D where you're like oh we're going to actually talk about our feelings right now and then we're going to fight a dragon Uh (laughs) The amount of people I know who are like have like these really in-depth conversations and like everyone's crying around the table and it got really hardcore and then oh but now there's a amethyst dragon here we have to beat it and suddenly it's like oh all of that's forgotten until like we've dealt with this uh, which I think is quite funny but also at the same time probably very cathartic and quite helpful for a lot of people to be able to sort of have a I guess a safe space where it's not you saying this it's your character you're hiding behind the imaginary thing but you can you can deal with it.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it allows people to kind of play with the different dynamics of of self, in a way, and, and their own attachment to group dynamics. I, I think there's a really interesting things in regards to belief that, you know, when you were talking about people crying all together, I'm sure some people who maybe haven't played in, in this way might find that really strange, that if you're not this character and you're not going through... I don't know, fighting a dragon, then maybe <laughs> maybe. why would you be crying? Um, but I, I think this is where the dynamics of, of play and particularly playing with, with levels of belief is really fascinating.
0: I mean, yeah, because you, you are kind of starting to... It's that same attachment I think that people get when they they get really into a movie or a video game or something, that you, you become so part of the world and part of the story and everything that, of course, you're connected to them in some way and particularly when you've spent 2 years <laughs> playing a long form game <laughs> with your friends uh it's going to become quite intense so yeah
1: but there so there's um Richard Chechner is a, a scholar in the study of performance and he has this distinction between uh make believe with a v and yeah. make belief with an f okay um, I know and they sound very similar, so I'm gonna try really hard to stress it <laughs> yeah. because I'm talking. Um but I'll just do with, like a little sound effect. Just be like this one, this one. <laughs> yeah. Uh <laughs> Make believe with a V uh talks about how in that dynamic of play with belief, it protects the boundaries between the world of the the that you're creating and playing within and the bit outside of it. Okay. But make belief with an F intentionally blurs that boundary. Uh, okay, so that's a bit like
0: um, I mean, we've talked, both of us outside of this podcast have talked a lot about cosplay and things like that. Because actually, that kind of place of are you the, you know, when you put on a costume like a drag queen or whatever, there are two personas, but are they the same person? Is
1: it sort of similar to that kind of performance level,
0: like when people go on stage yeah. and things?
1: So I I think that um Chechnya would kind of see when you you were talking about when you go to see a movie or something that might be a little bit more similar to the believe with a V where you go mm. into a space. I'm watching a movie. I'm in it in that moment and then I leave and I'm back into yeah. my my normal space. Um But I think make belief is a lot more like that cosplay thing or. I would argue also like tabletop role playing games where, you know, people move in and out of character very smoothly and easily because it's not this when I am sat here with the dice out, I am this character and I shall not be changed. You you then kind of shift in and out and you suddenly talk about how you're allergic to mushrooms or something but in your actual world and not in your character world and then you suddenly jump back to fighting a dragon and you are able to move within those spaces and the way that you were saying about how you start talking about things and it's kind of you but also kind of your character and people know that but are kind of (laughs) playing into that as well i think that idea of intentionally saying you know we're not going to specifically set these clear boundaries and in fact we're going to kind of purposefully mess
0: them yeah. up the amount it's that thing where you're like you're sat there and you're doing the very important okay i've got to make sure that i i play my thing right we're having we're getting all the exposition all this sort of stuff but ooh, chocolate biscuits are coming in and now i'm excited about the chocolate biscuits yeah in the same breath as this because you always order pizza exactly <laughs> <laughs> you say that my d d group didn't we we used to cook for each other like oh wow was, yeah. you are <laughs> it would be someone's job and then it would be somebody else's job to bring snacks um which was always it was always really nice it's very communal which always that's what i liked about dnd was actually that it became almost like a a sort of a very communal like you ate together you you played together everything was you know you were all in the moment in that space and it was very blurred it was like am i being the character's called chester he's a half-orc artificer and i love him deeply um <laughs> Basically, I went, oh, half orcs are meant to be stupid. That's a terrible thing. I'm going to make him really smart and like Tony Stark kind of levels of stupid machinery and things he can make. Anyway, um so it would be like, oh, am I being this now? Oh, but the chocolate biscuits have arrived and now I want the chocolate biscuits. It's ridiculous. It's, it's a very, you're right, it's an incredibly fluid space. You move through this and you kind of get to the point where you don't know where the character ends and you begin. Like, you could kind of, you you can see your own characteristics in it, but you can see their extreme versions and you are playing a part. But then at the same time, you're like, hmm, it's not really because I would definitely do what this person's, you know, you yeah. can, you're only using your own experience within it, um, which is quite fun. I enjoy that. It's quite funny to play a character who's nothing like you. That's always an interesting thing to see when you see someone playing someone who is so the antithesis of them and how they manage it because you can't not put yourself into it. Because you're sat there physically with other people.
1: Yeah, this has always been my problem, right? So I was supposed to be playing somebody at one point who was, like, really intelligent and clever and could, like, solve things. And I'm like, but I'm not clever. So what am I supposed to do? Because I still have to act as the clever person, but if I'm not clever, then what am I supposed to do? One
0: of us has a PhD and it's not me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very different type.
0: (laughs) But no, it is interesting. Like, I've definitely had characters where I've had to play, like, where I purposefully created somebody who is like very stoic and very kind of like, Oh no, don't look at me. I'm gonna be the anime guy with the, who stands in the corner, you know, kind of thing. Um and then eventually within maybe two sessions, it's like, No, they're not like that anymore because I can't do that. Like I can't maintain that <laughs> for this long. Which is very interesting. That it, it does blur so quickly to be like, Oh, I don't I don't act like that and so my character can't necessarily act like that. They're gonna have to they're going to have to have a bit of me in there.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that I've always found really fascinating about tabletop role playing games from like a, a scholarly perspective is that it's one of the um, most interesting ways of telling stories where you are both, you as a player, I should say, you as yeah. a player are both the audience and the storyer, sto- Storyteller? <laughs> the storyteller? Yeah. <laughs> I told you not clever. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so you're both the storyteller and the audience at the same time. And that doesn't often happen.
0: No. And it's one of the things that I really like. So um, at the moment, I'm looking really into role playing games purely as the idea of like, whether they blur the boundaries. And I put boundaries in inverted commas, you can't see that they're here. air quotes uh the boundaries between sort of the transformative and the affirmative when it comes to fan culture because you can play dnd or or whatever your tabletop role-playing game of choice specifically strictly to the rules and not change anything or you can completely change everything and do it whatever you want and become like you can transform it or you can both things at the same time depending on how you play it and also you were talking about live play games people become fans of live play games and make characters based on them that aren't actually D&D characters, they're OCs. It, it's like you get this level of, like, fandom culture, like, building up on top of each other that it's like, this no longer makes sense if you're trying to be, like, purely, like, nothing fits into two categories ever as far as I'm yes. concerned. But, like, if you're trying to look at it like that, you're like, this one doesn't work. It breaks the system. It's not working. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, but then I think a lot of kind of things like this where you get that performative element you have any kind of performance involved in it which it does, like you were saying, you're the audience and the player you're playing make-believe, all that kind of stuff you you can't be strictly one thing or another, because there's a human involved in the process, you know mm-hmm. well, there's always a human involved in the process, obviously but quite literally, you're there in the space, doing the thing so, I don't know it's an odd one <laughs> I'm going to yeah. do my, I don't know voice Vivid, you're the academic, help me <laughs> Like when are you gonna name drop somebody?
1: You know, I think the way that people engage with the storytelling is is fascinating, both from an active perspective as well as a, a creationary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's to name drop again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite anthropologists of mythology is Levi Strauss, and um, he has this idea of the myth maker as the bricolore, is how because he, he's French. Um. Um, but basically, saying that. You know, when you are making things, and he's talking about mythology, you grab at the things that are at hand in your culture, and you use it to construct the stuff around you. He's a structuralist, so he's thinking literally of structure of it. But I think that the hint behind of what he's saying is really fascinating, that when we are creating stories, we do kind of just grab at what we know, because we can't make something that we don't know. No. Um, because as a writer, like one of the things that I've
0: always been told from like the get go of like studying writing and be- and it kind of becoming my my job and everything was being told there are new no new ideas. Don't just do your own take on old ones, because don't try and think oh, I've got to come up with something brand new. If there's a story that compels you, you can play with it and make it into your own version of that story, and that's just as valid. And that's yeah. kind- that's the same thing, right? It's like. <clears throat> I, you know, there are only seven plots or whatever, depending on who you look at. There's nine <laughs> or seven or five, you know, depending on your your academic of choice. Um, but there's, you know, like the hero's journey. Everyone goes, oh my God, like Star Wars and Harry Potter are so, oh, I don't want to use Harry Potter as a reference point, but we're going to have to. Like, they're so similar. I'm like, yeah, because it's the hero's journey. Of course they're similar, right? You're just using the myth of the hero's journey in a different way. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of the same thing that you, you know, you do poach from other writers. You can't help it, right? There's stories you like, there's things that inform you as a person and you're going to be like, I'm going to take that thing. Um, Which is why I'm going to be honest, we're going going straight into fanfic and I'll leave again. But it's why I like things like, um, I've been watching Heartstopper and I can watch it and be like, oh, this is really interesting because I can see that this is, I'm not sure if it is, but it feels very much like the beats of BBC Merlin fanfic like the characters mm. I can line them up and be like oh this is this person this is this person. and i you know not to say that that's what it was or that what it was originally but i can see that it's been informed by the fact that this person clearly did like bbc Merlin. <laughs> you know you can see it or it was in the sphere of their influence in some way and they're roughly the same age as me i think the author so i think she was probably influenced by it because it would be hard not to it was a big tv thing at the time of when i was a preteen and a teenager um so it's interesting to see that and be like oh i can see those story beats from that thing here again but that doesn't mean that this thing is any less good it's still very good just because it's been referenced is referencing or influ- been influenced by this other thing
1: yeah listen listening to the <clears throat> podcasts and stuff that i do i can kind of pick up on on what they're picking up on and um one of my favorites uh also the way they tell the story um the narrator mm-hmm. and even the characters when they're kind of Uh, explaining what their characters are doing and stuff they describe it as if you're watching a movie
0: so they talk
1: about like cut to this thing and you know it fades to black and then we come back to this scene and it's like that's not how you would say read um yeah, in necessarily the same way, but they're clearly used to exploring narratives through a visual medium, and so therefore, when they're telling a story, they're doing it as yeah. if it's a visual medium, which is really fascinating when it's not a visual medium. I'm <laughs> listening to them. Yeah, they're using
0: the, literally using the cues, right? Um, yeah, which is that's really interesting because you talk about that kind of stuff with any kind of storytelling when people are like, oh, that chapter like cut away, and you're like, no, that chapter ended. <laughs> It didn't cut away. It ended. It's a chapter, not a not a scene. But fine, fine. I won't be pedantic about it. It's okay.
1: But yeah, there's there's different. We talked a little bit about how there's different um, game types and stuff. But there's yeah. different styles of play that people can kind of pick mm-hmm. up and and choose. And sometimes they're all meshed in in one game as well, which is always oh, really fascinating. Yeah,
0: I think it's interesting when particularly because again, that's either dictated that can be dictated by the game itself, but it's dictated by the players because players have different playstyles. You know, you'll be able to see within a group whether you're gonna mesh together if your version of playing D and D doesn't work with somebody else's. Like I have in my early days of playing D and D when I was at uni, there were just groups that I was like, this isn't gonna happen. This isn't gonna work because that person and my like and my playstyle, we just don't they clash, you know. Like I had people who told me not to meta game in inverted commas because I wanted to look at the map that had been put on the table, and they're like, "Oh, but our characters wouldn't know that." I'm like, "Yeah, but the map's in front of us. So <laughs> if the, if we're not meant to know, the map should be covered. If the map's there, it's available to us as people, right?" Um, <laughs> And the DM was like, well, I don't know, we can do it either way. And I'm like, you DM are meant to make a decision about this. This should not be down to the players having an argument. Um, but we were all, you know, teenagers and learning how to play. So, you know, it was going to happen. But it's interesting to see that like those two things of like, what, how, what are we going to do here? Because one thing is like, kind of, this is happening, but should we play it as if we, we the people do not know, have any idea at all about what's going on? in any way shape or form or do we have some knowledge because we're not the characters we're ourselves can that inform our play style so that's really interesting to see when that sort of stuff clashes like people call it rules lawyering like what are you like where in the rules are you going to pick up this thing to be like no you can't do this um and i think all of us do it at some point i don't think it's a good thing or a bad thing i think it's just a thing that people do um um, particularly if you're like you have massively overrolled your attack uh how have you managed this it's like oh well I've got this and this and this so it's it's interesting to see that play out when you're in a room with people as well to be like how are we going to <laughs> how are we going to work together as a group you yeah know?
1: it's an interesting kind of social dynamic both of um you know at the beginning we talked about how lovely and communal it is but Obviously sometimes there's there are issues. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it doesn't work.
0: Sometimes you But that's um... also really
1: interesting, isn't yeah. it?
0: <laughs> sometimes there are arguments.
1: At the beginning, we kind of alluded to the fact that there is something that has recently happened yes. with Dungeons and Dragons as an institution. Yeah. You, so... For people who are not as in the know of D&D news. Would okay. you like to explain? It's really interesting, and I think actually it has a big effect on everything we've been talking about as well.
0: So mm-hmm. it's cool. So basically, Wizards of the Coast, who own, who are the com- parent company of Dungeons and Dragons, they also have um, Magic Gathering, and they're all owned by Hasbro. So that gives you kind of a bit of information about the background of this thing. Um, essentially wanted to change the uh, open gaming license, which is what allows people to take the rules set of D&D the basic how it works of D&D and transcribe that onto their own game settings so um say you wanted to write your own game but you wanted to just use the rules of D&D so it was easy for other people to either pick up or kind of move into a D&D setting and all that kind of stuff which is what's been allowed for decades that's absolutely been the way people have made uh, tabletop role playing games uh, that was suddenly going to be that you were going to have to pay massive royalties to wizards of the coast um, just for doing that. And that was gonna go, and that was gonna be backdated as well. Uh, as far as the original leaked document seemed to say, like, it wasn't ob- completely clear, but that seemed to be what it was saying. Uh, it would also say that, like, anything you wanted to do like that, whether you were doing open uh live play games that were using D&D, that would include be included in this. Whether you were creating comics based off D&D content. So, like, if you were using, like, the terminology or the obvious, like, the, you know, that kind of thing. You, I mean, there's an argument that it's just swords and sorcery, right? It's just high fantasy. But if it's you were kind talking. of... It's all Tolkien. It's all Tolkien. It's Tolkien all the way down, baby. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um But if you were kind of doing anything where you were, like... Even it, it as far as it looked from like going through it, and I haven't gone into it as in depth the a fine tooth comb as some people have, it seemed to be implying that even people who were selling like art of things like D twenty Ranger or something like that, like a sticker or thing w- would be included under in this. No matter how much money you made off what was D stuff, you would be having to pay and I think it was something ridiculous, like twenty to twenty five per cent of royal that. In royalties to them um and obviously everyone went absolutely not you you can't do that you know this has been a game that's been around since the 70s that has never had you know the open gaming license has always been that everyone can just use this as they want all that kind of stuff your D products are yours and that's what you make money off but if other people want to take some of that and make you know it's not hurting you um and essentially it looked like a bit of a money grab uh mm-hmm. I would advise people to go and look up the Gizmodo articles about it. They have done some incredibly in-depth journalism into this. I think they were the ones who got the original leaks documents. So I'd absolutely go and recommend looking those up um, and everything that's going on around it. Um, anyway, so D&D kind of went... Uh, well, Wizards of the Coast kind of backpedaled this and had a few kind of, oh, we're sorry, we're listening. You know, these kind of platitude comments and things, and they released a new version that nobody was happy with that either. Like, oh, but this is what we were going to do. And it was definitely because we want to make sure that people can't use the D&D stuff to make games about Nazis. Literally, that's what they said in their apology. And it was like, <laughs> nobody, what? What? No, like you could just, you could have a different thing for that. <laughs> you know, you
1: can do that yeah. in other ways. So it felt very... um It sounds like you just want to make money off of the game Yeah, exactly. about
0: Nazis. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah, it kind of felt very disingenuous. And uh, as of today, they have backpedaled on all of this and left it as it is um, with then a new version, which is the 5.1, I think it's called, which is like, you could, which they literally said, this is still available and this new version is available. You can choose which one you use. And it was like, oh, that feels very passive aggressive, but... (laughs) fine. It was literally like, choose which one you want. Like, that's what it said. And it was like, ooh, (laughs) okay. Um, At least that's how it read. I'm not sure if they intended it to be, but it it didn't, again, it didn't come across great from a multi-million dollar company. Um, Particularly with Hasbro at the top of it. As far as, like, people have done some digging and, like, stuff like that, what it seems to be is that the current, and I'm going to get this wrong around, was it the CEO or the COO? Anyway, the people at the top of the pile for Wizards of the Coast are people who've come across from some from Microsoft, I think, uh, and were instrumental in things like creating the subscription services for Microsoft and PlayStation, uh, not PlayStation, Xbox, obviously, and things like that. So they were the they were very pushy on like people doing uh, in game bu- uh, things for, for Xbox games and like uh, the Microsoft Windows thing where you now have a subscription service and stuff like that. Again, um, I am going off what. I have found out through internet articles and all this sort of stuff. So I'm going to go with allegedly this is the case. Yes. <laughs> please, please don't come at me if I'm wrong. Um, This is just from my own digging that I've been doing. And it just kind of seems to be that they were trying to put that similar sort of model onto D&D to kind of continue to make money out of it after people have sort of done the initial purchase um, because they wanted to have a subscription service on what's called D&D Beyond as well, which is what user... Uh, players tend to use as their way of getting all the manuals and making, you know, it's the online sort of archive of everything, Mm. um, where up until now, you've sort of had a, you can just buy a digital copy of the books and things, Uh, whereas like this new way of doing things, and I'm not sure whether this has been backtracked on or not, would be that you would have to be paying $30 a month and you'd get everything, but you'd have to continuously pay your $30 a month or you'd have access to nothing. So you couldn't keep what you you bought, essentially. Uh, Which, again, is problematic and not the way to play. You know, lots of people don't want to do that. They'll just switch to other things. And what I was saying at the beginning, the biggest issue is that because D&D has become the catch-all term for all of this stuff, that when people see a live play game switching from D&D to another uh, play system, an indie play system or something that's maybe not so well known, it loses like they've done number tests on it on live play games when they switched across to something else for like a few episodes or a a different type of game or something that actually it loses viewership because people who don't necessarily know that much about tabletop gaming uh, are like, oh, well, it's not D&D, so I don't care because they know that one, but they don't know any of the others. Mm. And so it's not as easy as just being like, okay, we'll go and play another game because having that D&D tag, having that attached to it in the same way that like, you know, you, other who, like other vacuum cleaners, are, cleaners are available, but I want a Hoover. I want a Dyson. You know that kind of thing. They kind of have the name brand recognition. You know, the same as an iPod. Oh, I've got a different MP3 player, but I've you know everyone says iPod. Yeah. And so it, that's the thing. I think that people that there's a slight issue with is purely just on that that brand recognition. But I think the likelihood is because now they've backpedaled on this thing, which is in part I would say due to a the fan base being rules lawyers because what did you think was going to happen with people who've gone through every inch of manuals to know exactly how to do everything within it what what, what? <laughs> like your whole fan base is made up of people who spend hours trawling through very complicated rules trying to learn how they work <laughs> that you would that was never going to go any other way was it um but also like these are people who are lots of them not only for some of them is it their livelihood, but for a lot of them it is their community, their community aspect, and you're threatening that. You're threatening not only to be, you're saying, oh, well, you know, you can't do it. You're basically telling people who spend a lot of time just doing this as their hobby, they're now going to have to pay $30 a month to do their hobby. Nope, nobody wants to do that. Like that's a, Especially if you've gone from it just being free, you bought a book and now you can play the game. And you can choose how much you want to spend on it, but when somebody else is dictating how much you get, you have to pay in order to engage with your community. I, maybe that's capitalism, but I think it was going to go down badly when a lot of people have, you know, never had to do that yeah. for this particular thing. And also, like lots of people like dressing up as their own characters and making their own fan art and all that kind of stuff. And like it felt like a, as much as it wasn't necessarily a direct threat upon that, it felt like it was threatening even that level of stuff because people were being like, oh, so if I made a comic of my fan characters or my characters that I've made in my game and then I wanted to put it on my Patreon, would that be, you know, it was so difficult, you know, that it became like that and very, very complicated. Um, So, and obviously like a lot of it was people worrying about things that might not be the case and stuff, but that doesn't change the fact that that worry was there and it set in that like the community was anxious about things that they weren't this, it was so, difficult to understand what they were talking about and so like what does this affect who is this affecting all that kind of stuff so even the people who it maybe wouldn't have affected were a wanting to support the people it was going to affect which of course they should well done them but b being like so what's this going to change to in the future will this mean that i can't do things down the road you know so it was quite an interesting thing to see um but i do think it's probably pushed a lot of people towards things like pathfinder uh, who have now released their own kind of rule set as an open gaming license, um, and you know that kind of thing. And then, like, is it Galaxy the one that's? Yeah, it's Star like a, one? it's from
1: Fantasy Flight Games, I think. Yeah, and like I said, like one.
0: a lot of game other ones who already have open gaming license, so people can use them. Were just kind of saying like, well, you can use ours. So it, I think there was, I think there will be a move towards people either going towards things like Pathfinder or designing their own. Just because I think this has been a a bit of a wake-up call. I
1: I think it's really fascinating to think about it from the perspectives of the, you know, that kind of institutionalized versus individual narratives of, obviously, um, you know, they're thinking of, of, well, we made this game that people are then using, but, you know, when you sit down to play with your friends on a Saturday while the other friend is making food, apparently, as opposed to ordering pizza, you know... it they Do they really have ownership over that? Because at that stage, you have an individual who has crafted their own narrative over it. You have people who have created their own characters, who have created an intelligent half-orc instead of a dumb half-orc, you know, <laughs> yeah. have altered aspects of the game to fit their own perspectives of it. At that point, do yeah, you know, exactly. what role is D&D actually in that, which is a really interesting thing to to really look at.
0: I think treating D&D like it's a, um, like a video game or something like that, where you, you are paying for the thing that you cannot change in any way, shape, or form. I mean, obviously you can if you, you mod or hack the games or whatever. Like, but most people, when they buy a video game, they're playing the game, right? And so if you go, oh, we've got a DLC that you can buy, or we've got this pack that you can buy that go on top of it, people will you know, buy that because they want more of the content. But with D&D, you just have to get a book, and then you've got the book, And then you can do what you want, like that you don't need. So I think trying to treat something that behaves, like you said, in a way that the user interface, the people who are playing it have so much more control over it to the point that they can change it almost completely from what it was originally. And rule of cool, the whole thing that was cool, right? If they're like, oh, is that a cool thing? Yeah, I'll let you do that. That's the thing DMs do. Like, it doesn't quite make sense. But, you know, it was really cool. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's fine. You know. That's so ingrained in part of the culture and the community of D&D that you can't be like, okay, cool, now you have to have a subscription service. If I find it really interesting that they decided to try and do this. And it, yeah, like, it just feels like it was they didn't know their audience. You know, they didn't know their fan base. It, it feels like the top people at the top, these people who are were from Microsoft or whatever, were just going to be like, oh, yeah, of course we can do that without thinking... <laughs> no, you came to the wrong party, literally. Uh, These people have swords.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because, you know, obviously, like, people like myself who maybe don't get to play as often or um, uh, are unable to or uninterested in it, but also partake in it in other ways, particularly of, you know, listening. Mm. Um, Those actual play podcasts are obviously highly at risk as well as uh, many other things as well, which I, I think is really fascinating.
0: Yeah, like, I was trying to work out, and it was just part of the thing I was thinking about was, like, how does the critical role Amazon Prime show fit into this?
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, I wonder if that's what they were particularly suddenly going, oh, crap, we could have been making money off of that, and not thinking about the fact that that's impacting, you know, the individual person who just wants to cosplay as their OC.
0: I think that's exactly what they were thinking. And I think they were also thinking, oh, subscription services work in a vertical because they don't yes. to get across with them. But um, we can do that. We can kind of, enge- we can kind of force it in a subscription service into this so that that get- brings us in money from the everyday player. And then actually what we want is royalties off these guys uh, or more royalties than we're currently getting off these guys. Um, it was very much a money grab as far as everybody is concerned, um, allegedly uh allegedly. <laughs> allegedly and uh it, it, yeah it didn't work and i think that they're, they're gonna have to on an individual i think actually the only way it will work is if they on an individual basis negotiate with people who may be like critical role or whatever who is oh, critical roles obviously the biggest one right like for people who mm. don't know what critical role is it's an it's a live play game that started on twitch became incredibly popular uh around the second like it got very popular towards the end of the first game and then like into the second game it just skyrocketed Um and then since then it's sort of become its own company and they make their own rule books and, and everything but they also have an animated show based on the stories from the first live play game they did which is now on Amazon Prime called The Adventures of Vox Machina and yes Vox Machina is that the first slot? I don't know I don't know uh <laughs> I'm not a critical role person, um, and uh, it's done very, very well. They they kickstarted that project themselves and all this kind of thing as well. So it was um, it it hasn't seemed to have been particularly to do with wizards of wizards of the coast. So they do have links in now and, and collaborations and things like that. So I think that's it. Is actually something like that, which is now a, a multi. I don't know if it's a million dollar company or whatever, which is entirely based on D and D. And has moved beyond kind of being D and D. Whether that was the trigger point for it, it may well have been. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah, we has. can speculate wildly, but um, allegedly, allegedly, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's interesting though is like the guys from critical, the the folks from Critical Role, any even um, were very they they very much came up and went, yeah, no, we're not. That's not happening. So it was good to see that like even the big names in the community weren't like it wasn't just like a you know, a storm in a teacup. Everybody, everybody was upset by this. Everybody was like, what are you doing? We have, this is, this can't happen. Um, which kind of shows how, despite the fact that there are, every community has problems and arguments and gets across with each other, this really brought everyone together. So <laughs> clearly uh, we proved the right of a, a ragtag group of misfits will join together to fight the big dragon, you know? <laughs> Because um, I was just thinking about like what you were saying about the thing of how important is the the players, the the dungeon, ma- dungeon master. That sounds so... I don't like that term. We're going to use game master. <laughs> uh, okay. The game master, the players, um, all of that kind of stuff. Like, are they more important than the game itself? I mean, I guess the game gives them structure. And I guess if you're not the most super imaginative person to coming up with your own story or whatever, you've got a story to follow um but you're right i think once you kind of once you have the rule book once you kind of know what you're doing once you've got your dice the the other stuff becomes less important that the game will play you you're playing the game and, and you'll change it as much as you want or how you know how much or how little and actually how important is being able to get another rule book how important is being able to uh make exactly the right character sheet all that kind of stuff i don't i don't know it's, it's interesting how how important are the rules once you're telling a story
1: yeah cuz especially you know obviously people have flexibility to it and um you know the one that i listen to that isn't dnd but it's um galaxy they have added their own system that's kind of like a tarot card They've oh, cool. added into it where you can, um, they all have their own meanings. to. It's not actually tarot cards. Mm. It's based off of some other board game. So they've actually combined a tabletop role playing game with an actual board game um to then make their own tabletop role-playing game which is absolutely fascinating
0: and it's not uncommon either like lots of people will do yeah. that they'll take a, they'll take um one system they like and find a system like you said from it could be from a board game it could be from another D D game uh, not D, another tabletop role-playing game it could be from a video game even like people take it could even be like a legitimate like thing like card, like snap <laughs> or something like that yeah it could be oh, we're going to induce a, a mahjong element to this. You know, people do that. And it's really cool. I, I really like that people do that. Yeah, cool.
1: yeah. So it's been, it's really fascinating whenever they they kind of have, they flip the oracle card to figure out what happens whenever someone rolls even. So nothing, mm-hmm. like there's no successes or failures. They'll flip an oracle card to figure out what happens. Um, and that's then in cool. other systems, they also flip the oracle card. So that's a whole system that they've kind of, made up their own rule to and has made their own game out of it in a way that I think is really fascinating. So yeah, it kind of goes into this idea of, again, people taking the stuff that is nearest to them to create their own narrative and and construct it the way that they want. And it'll be interesting to see if if Wizards of the Coast do stick to their guns on this, how much we'll see a hell of a lot more of that kind of stuff happening. Yeah, exactly. Or if they try and bring in a I would not be
0: surprised that right now they're clearly, they're backing off, but I would not be surprised if we didn't see another attempt to do something like this in a slightly less obvious way or like it's done subtly in dribs and drabs coming forward, which I think is the thing that means that people already are looking for other play systems. They're already looking for people who are not going to, so they don't have to be worried about it essentially. Um, And I, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting when people have house rules for their games. Like, when you're playing board games and stuff, people will always have house rules that are specific to how they've always played it because it means that they've made either their lives easier or they've made a way of playing the game more interesting to them. Like you go to any kind of, I was literally at my friend's house the other night playing board games and we were just like, we don't really understand how this rule works, but we're going to make it work like this because actually that informs our play of the game into a more fun capacity. Like if we do this thing, will that mean that actually we get more enjoyment out of the game? Yes. Okay, cool. So we're ignoring that rule entirely because it's dumb and we don't like it, you know? But other people might be like, oh, that rule's great. I really love how that works in the game. Um, so that's kind of fascinating, I think, to see house rules particularly and how people are using that to inform their own their own version of it. Um, also, the ones where it's like a literal house rule that came out of being in a specific environment where it's like, we need to have something to do the, And you end up with like the talking lemon or something like that, you know? And it's like, oh, just use that, that'll do. And it's like, it becomes something super informed of the party, but it literally came because you didn't have anything else to use. I, I think that's funny. Um, a, a very old game I was playing, I think it was pre lockdown. We had a magic spoon, uh, and it was purely just because we needed something to stop each other talking over each other. So <laughs> one of the characters in, like, I found we had a spoon, and we were using, and then one of the characters in game had was given the item of the magic spoon uh, and it could physically stop people. You gave it to somebody and they would be the only person who could they had it within the sphere of magic so they could talk. And I liked that because it was like we made a rule that worked for the game that also made sense outside the game. Uh, So you were both player and character at the same time.
1: Yeah. Blurring the boundaries. Yeah, exactly. That's what the whole thing is,
0: right? Maybe that's what we should have called this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We still can. We can, yeah. That's the name now. (laughs) <laughs> D&D, but oh, tabletop role-playing games, blurring the boundaries. <laughs> Do you think this would make you want to go and play more D&D?
1: I mean, I've always wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> I think the problem is, is that me and my my partner are are slightly um, geographically separated from, like, many of our, our friends. I think there's only... One, I mean, obviously I am massively because, uh, for people listening to me, I am American. <laughs> um, what? I, so a lot of like the friends that I grew up around, I mean, to be fair, I don't think any of them play, but even if they were interested, they're, uh, very far away. And then, um, I spent most of my time up north when I was, uh, initially moved here. And my partner is also from Yorkshire and now we're down south. And so it's like, I think one of his friends, lives uh also down south and that's it yeah and when you have adult lives i think that's one of the things that
0: people don't realize is actually it's quite difficult to arrange for like a regular game when you're all adults because life just happens and that's part of the play thing i think people get so much out of it when they can do it because when you are an adult and life is a lot sometimes when you've got responsibilities and stuff other priorities in your life they um you know you have to kind of think can i do my playing today am I allowed to do my playing today? And so I think when you have time for it and you make time for it, it becomes more important because you don't get to just go out at lunchtime and play with a ball. You know, you're not like, oh, bell's rung,
1: I'm going to go home and,
0: you know, do nothing for the rest of the afternoon. You can't do that.
1: But maybe I'll try another um, couple's one. Yeah, you should. It, it was a murder mystery one before, Ooh. but I, I think I was using a and d system and actually I think a, a different system would be much more...
0: Uh, See, I think for a murder mystery one, as much as Call of Cthulhu is very complicated. If you looked for, there's a cut down version of Call of Cthulhu that you could use, that might be fun because it's work. all sort of, you know, you're solving a mystery, right? You're looking for the the eldritch horrors, yeah. so it might not be a bad one to try. <laughs> Though, again, the sanity meter, uh, <laughs> always a fun thing in that. How bonkers are you going to go throughout this game? <laughs>
1: Maybe I'll just that- throw that in. I'll, I'll yeah. show him that there's a sanity an meter, meter and won't tell him why. Oh, dead body, just- right? You know, <laughs> the um, whole time he's yeah. like, "What's gonna make my sanity go down?" See, I think
0: it's quite funny. I have like when I play Call of Cthulhu with friends, we have like a veto card. We have like an actual card that's like an X that's like this is now too much for me as a person, not not my character, but like me. Now, right now, we have to take a breath because it's got too scary. I'm going to go do some, like, I just need to take a moment away from the table. We've only had one time where it was so bad that we had to stop the game. Um, We were playing in a cafe and it just was like, yeah, this is too much now. I need to, I need to go home and think about, about what we just did.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To go home and hug someone.
0: Yeah, exactly. I was just sat there like, oh no, I don't (laughs) like it anymore. Uh, And we had to restart like another day. It was, it was quite entertaining. it'd it'd been quite a lot quite quickly because we were like we were playing in a board game cafe so it was like a very intense game Um, and when you've got it that you're like with a magnifying glass and like some photographs and they're getting closer and closer (laughs) to a horrific face after you've just seen like rotting dead bodies and then like somebody's been following you and and all this like you've just built up all these layers of things and then suddenly you're like you know what this is the last straw today this one this particular thing where I've been given an actual thing and it's real (laughs) in my hands you're like no, I can't cope with that. <laughs> I love Call of the Cthulhu. I'm saying yeah, I really enjoy playing it because again, it gives you like that's an actual visceral response to something that is in no way real, but it's so scary that you're like, okay, I just I'm gonna have a cup of tea and then we can start again. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's very blurred. When you know, is it real? Is it not? Is it a play? Is it? Are you playing? Are you experiencing it? Yeah, it's, it's interesting.
1: Yeah, there's a. Um, I mean, this might be a little bit late to mention it, but there's a type of um, a theatrical play idea by Stanislavski, who's like a acting guy. But uh, <laughs> is that that what he is? <laughs> this is this is the extensive knowledge I have. Acting guy, acting guy. Um, no, but he had this idea of encouraging uh, his actors and stuff to uh, engage as if real. Mm. But he called it the magic if, yeah, the magic mm. if, um, so you're playing at as if real and it's a type of theatrical play with belief, and i I think that there might be something kind of similar to that I, like a mix between that and the kind of blurry mm. boundaries of Chechner, I think is a
0: there is absolutely some horror novel film whatever that uses that premise, absolutely there is I can guarantee you that oh of definitely. that's terrifying. <laughs> and used it like oh but I yeah I think it's you're right it is that thing kind of like what if this is real what if you're playing it you know what if you turned around um there's actually a version of okay just just for the listeners to know at some point in every episode I will try and talk about Lovecraftian Eldritch Horror because I'm obsessed with it <laughs> and i have just allowed to in this episode because we're talking about tabletop role playing games and course Cthulhu is one of the the bigger ones um but a friend of mine for a while, and actually I didn't play in this game, but they were doing it where they were all separate and they were sending letters to each other. And so it became really blurred that like each character would be like the, the game master would give them a piece of information or they'd have to be like looking, basically they were doing things like looking for things that looked vaguely weird in the real world in which to incorporate into their next letter to the next player. And it was, apparently it was very intense, like very, very intense and, not necessarily for people who might not be of sound mind uh, because you're like where is the where's the reality here um, but also at the same time like that sounds like a cool escape room like if you could yeah. do like a really immersive theatre <laughs> experience for, like a day that was like that that would be amazing and then just like okay cool we need to we need to go back to the real world now
1: there there was somebody who did um, research on ARGs um, who was talking about how uh, people were engaging with, you know, how they have like those things of you call this number and then you get this information and then you mm-hmm. go to that, you know, longitude, yeah. long, you know, all that kind of crap. Um, but they were doing that. And apparently they the way that they had constructed it was um, there was a phone number that you called. I think it was a phone number that you called. Um, but the person who was playing the other side was pretending as if it was like they didn't know what was happening. And that was part Ooh, of the clue. Yeah. But people were so like the few people who had reached out thought that they were breaking something. And so then they had like patched that up and then they never talked about that clue. And the game the people making the game had to like try to figure out what went wrong. And what it was was that people were happy to break the boundaries until they thought they had actually broken it.
0: Yeah. That's and then really went interesting. oh crap. And went yeah. backwards. Yeah. That's so interesting. I think people, yeah, people with games, you you hit a wall, right? The mm-hmm. wall of reality. Where is it that we're breaking this? Where is it that it's going too far? Um, and obviously, for some people, that wall is in different places. Yeah. Well, for everybody, that wall's in different Where places.
1: It, yeah, it's like you, you have fun with that blurred boundary until mm-hmm. you think that there is an issue. And then you yeah. suddenly go, ooh, like, I don't actually want to upset anybody by calling a number that they don't know what's involved in this and that's not fair to them so i'm not going to involve that when really it's an actor on the other side
0: i feel like we're getting into larp territory which is quite interesting um so we will stop before we talk about larp because i think actually larp itself is a really interesting topic that we kind of need to give time to because i think role-playing games we said this before we started recording role-playing games do verge on larp there is an element of live action roleplay to playing a tabletop roleplaying game, I would say, depending on how into it you get. But it's not the same as like a full-on, full-on immersive LARP. And immersive, I would really like to talk about immersive theatre in regards to this as well, because I think it's very interesting. I mean,
1: when you you talk about, you know, at the beginning, we kind of talked about people and how people like to not fit into categories and and break things and i, I think that particularly uh, nerd fandom like larping and and i'm saying nerd affectionately um yeah. nerd <laughs> brackets like-
0: affectionate close brackets
1: cosplay and uh larping and tabletop role-playing games and uh drag they're all there's so many similarities and relationships between them where you can kind of maybe look at a group of people that are wearing normal clothes sat around a table playing a game and you can go okay that's that but then what if they're dressed as their characters but sat around the table is that okay, well, I guess that might be more like this, and then what what if they're acting it out while they're playing the game, and now now you're getting into these way more blurred of of boundaries that I think is really fascinating.
0: Exactly, and I mean, because it's funny, because I've done a lot of in-depth studying and stuff around cosplay, as you well know, and the amount of people who will talk about cosplay is one thing and LARP is one thing and historical reenactment is one thing and then drag as one thing and then blah, blah 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 and you're like these are all the same thing i'm sorry <laughs> they they're separate they're like little subsets of it but they are kind of when you get down to the nitty gritty of it they're pretty much all the same thing in one capacity or another you know if you it's just your your flavor of dressing up uh and i say this all very affectionately with a lot of respect for all of it um but I don't necessarily uh, think the characterization, the categorization is, is necessary. But-
1: on a different episode, I'll probably tell you about how I structured my interviews purposefully to make people start questioning themselves. <laughs> but- <laughs> and I'm very excited for that. But I think before we talk about every other episode we're going to do, yes. uh, we
0: should we should close this one off. Um, This has been really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think I had a really good time and hopefully other people did too. Thank you for chatting with me about the D20 and allowing me to name drop academics and also talk about play and my attempts at a two player (laughs) tabletop role playing game in the
0: middle of a pandemic. Uh, thank you for teaching me about academics because I always find that interesting. It means I get to go and do some reading afterwards and then scratch my head, like, why is academic language like this? Uh, I'll and also send you some readings. Thanks. <laughs> uh, actually, we can have readings. We'll have the readings for people if they want to on the, uh, uh, and I will put the links to the uh, Gizmodo articles and the articles about the uh, Wizards of the Coast uh, open gaming license for people who are interested in going down that rabbit hole, which is great. Uh and I think we'll also because we've talked about live play games, we'll we'll link to some live play games for people to, to have yeah. listen to as well because they're great fun if you've got four hours to spare to listen to one. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Clear your afternoon. Uh but uh so I've been Holly Swineyard and I've been Viviana Asimos. And thank you for listening to uh I'm a Fan of That. ba <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening. Remember to like, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast and do give it a share. Tell your friends, family, fellow fans. Get the word out however you feel like you can. You can follow us on social media. Links are in the show notes, as well as some links to further reading for anyone who might be interested. Music for this episode was Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. This episode was produced by Viviana Simos and Holly Swinger.